Okay, if I could get your attention, we'd get started today. We are studying, as you know, the Gospel of Luke. And I put it together in 10 lessons, if you can believe that. 24 chapters in 10 lessons. And so uh, it's really important for you all to be prepared. I send out a message on uh, the next Luke lesson on usually on Thursdays or Fridays. And so uh, it, it'll be posted on the website, or I can send it to you direct, whatever you prefer. Uh, the questions that you have on your table also, I hope you'll take those home and spend a few minutes every week looking those over so you'll be prepared, because we're covering a lot of territory. Uh, today's lesson, I think the, the, the part of it that I like the best is the temptation of Christ. There's just something about that that's just you know, so real to, to me that... Every day we live, we're tempted. And I was thinking about the movie clip for today, and when I think of that temptation, I think of the, uh, that great movie, the Jimmy Stewart movie, It's a Wonderful Life, and uh, that, that scene with Mr. Potter and, and Jimmy Stewart. Don't you love the way he looked at his hand after he shook hands with him? Like, oh, I just shook hands with the devil, you know. And that's exactly what Mr. Potter represented. All right, so if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 3, and we'll endeavor to make it through chapter 3 and 4 today. There's four very important stories in these two chapters that uh, are not only uh, great to understand uh, what's going on in the Bible and what God has for us there, but also... They, they mean a lot to us and our salvation. What Jesus does in these stories has everything in the world to do with us being saved and us being forgiven and spending eternal life with him. And so we'll talk about that. In verse 1 and 2, uh, we talked last week about how uh, Luke does everything he can to investigate and make sure his account is right on the money. And he's also that way with the chronology, when all this stuff happened and in what order. And so in verse 1 and 2, he gives you just a whole gamut of ways to date the beginning of Jesus' ministry, starting with John the Baptist. So he says, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... And that's the way the Romans kept track of time, by the way. That, their calendar was based on the different emperors and how long they had reigned. And we know uh, that the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar would have been about 26 A.D. About 26 A.D. was the beginning of, of John the Baptist's ministry. And so there was a little bit of a lag time between John the Baptist preaching and when Jesus came on the scene and began his ministry. And so since Jesus' ministry was a little over three years, uh, generally the accepted date of Jesus' crucifixion was 38 AD. So gives you an idea of the, uh, the dates and the chronology. Uh, Luke does a great job of that. Talks about the Herod was the Tetrarch. That's Herod Antipas, not Herod the Great. His brother Philip was this and, and tells you uh, and when the high priests were Annas and Caiaphas. So that's the exact time. You can pretty much uh, locate when that was. But here's the point. 
This is when, verse 2, the word of God came to John. Now, this is John the Baptist, not John the Apostle. John the Baptist was related to Jesus, and so he's like his second cousin or something, we think. And uh, so, therefore, he would know about Jesus and who he was. He just didn't know when Jesus was going to show up or what the circumstances were, would be, location and time and the whole deal. And John the Baptist came into all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And when he did, we're seeing verse 4, Luke is saying, and this was a fulfillment of prophecy. And so he lays out uh, the prophecy of Isaiah about John the Baptist, how he would come and he would be the forerunner or the or he would pave the way, make ready the way of the Lord. So he would come before Jesus to get people uh, ready to receive Jesus. You can call uh, John the Baptist a human flashlight. A human flashlight. He shined on Jesus, not on himself. He shined the light on Jesus and, and told people what they needed to do to prepare to be ready for Jesus. And it was basically, recognize your sin and repent. The word repent is a very important word to the ministry of both John the Baptist and Jesus. It means literally to change your mind. You change your mind. In, in the case of his audience, they used to think that the way or the road or the path was this way. But now, if they repent, they change their mind, it's this way. They used to think that you were saved by works, and you need to be involved only in religion, and it had to uh, only do with what you did on the, on the outside, the, the acts, the works, the performance. But now with Jesus, John the Baptist and Jesus, they were saying, no, it's about the grace of God. So you recognize your sin, you repent of it, you change your mind about it, and then you are saved by the grace of God. And so it's a, a radical change that John the Baptist and Jesus bring onto the sea, scene at that time, especially the religious scene. And it's a shock to the system, you know. It's a shock to the system to think all your life it was about what you did and if you kept the rules and obeyed and went to church and gave money and on and on and on and all the rites and rituals and everything, and then suddenly you find out that it's no. It's, that's all about you. This is all about what God has done. This is about the grace of God. And uh, so it, it is a change. It is something that you need to uh, understand and be prepared for to, in order to receive Jesus as your Savior. Now, uh, interesting enough, John the Baptist, his preaching in the wilderness he was totally unique, uh, not mainstream at all, not establishment guy. He wasn't from Jerusalem. All the establishment guys, all the religious leaders were in Jerusalem ministering at the temple and going through all the religious stuff. Here's John the Baptist. He's out in the wilderness. You know, he's got this real rough clothing, never shaved or cut his hair in his life. And uh, he eats insects, <laughs> locusts and wild honey and what have you. I mean, he's a unique guy. He's not like anybody we, we've ever known. And his preaching is like that too. For instance, uh, I assume that when you go to church, uh, all of your ministers give a real positive message. And it's a, 
you know, trying to encourage you and motivate you to go out and, and have a good attitude and do the right thing. And so you come into church thinking, you know, that you're going to get this great message and, and hopefully even the, the minister will tell you how great you are and how well you're doing and the state of the church is terrific. Uh, that's what is the norm. Look at John the Baptist's ministry. Look what his preaching is. Look at his introduction in verse 7. His introduction. Imagine saying this to an audience. Here's his introduction. You brood of vipers. You bunch of snakes. <laughs> How would that go over? And then he proceeds to, to attack every guy in the audience, their vocation. You know, you religious leaders, you're hypocrites. You tax collectors, you're crooks. You soldiers, you abuse your authority. And you people, you're selfish. And he just goes on down the list. I mean, he gets personal. He gets personal with people and gets in their face. I mean, it's, it's incredible. What's he trying to accomplish in, in doing that? Is he out of his mind? Is he just a mean guy? No, he realizes that before these people can repent or have a desire to repent, they've got to be, they've got to understand who they really are in relation to God. That, that they're not perfect, they can't do it themselves, they make all kinds of mistakes, they're, they're not uh, as good a people as they make out to be. It's not, I'm okay, you're okay. That ain't right. John's ministry is, you're not okay, <laughs> and therefore you need a Savior. So when the Messiah comes, so when God sends his anointed one, his son, into the world, he sends him as a Savior, and it's going to be all about him. And they need to be prepared for that. They need to understand that and, and get ready and repent of all this they used to think, you go this way. They need to get on this path and go this way with Jesus. So the repentance, uh, the unique message of John the Baptist, not mainstream, but totally different from anything they'd ever heard. Amazingly enough, he was very popular. The people said, boy, there's a guy out there preaching something we've never heard before. And it's really pretty awesome. I think what he's saying is the truth. And so he's drawing big crowds out there to the River Jordan and to get people to step up and publicly announce their sin and their need for repentance. He was having them come out into the Jordan River and he was baptizing them. And, and the whole point of baptize there's a lot of different kinds of baptism. And the whole point of baptism is to identify with something. And so... They had, in, the Jew, in Judaism, in the religion, they baptized people in the synagogues to identify them with becoming new members or proselytes if they were Gentiles that, would, that were coming in. So they identified with whatever it was they were being baptized for. So this is what John was doing. But his identification, his baptism, was about repentance. You're coming out here in the river, and you're going under water and come back, and you're saying, I used to think this, but they'd go down, he'd come up, but now I think this. Now I think it's all about God. And, and that's what he was doing out there. And people were coming out there in pretty big crowds to see him. So 
Uh, it's very interesting. He was so popular. And this is what, you know, this, the, the big temptation, of course, we're going to get to in a minute, was really the temptation that Christ faced. But I see a temptation here that John faced as well. Uh, uh, believe it or not, all the, the major ministers, you know, that I've ever known, if you really get to know them, you know, to be a minister of a really big church uh, and to put up with all the stuff that goes on in a church, you need to be very self-confident and have a pretty big ego. I hate to break that to you. <laughs> but if, if uh, you go to uh, one of these big churches, your minister's probably, by necessity, you know, got to be pretty self-confident, right? Uh, and so we tend, uh, they tend to also put themselves kind of up on a pedestal removed from the congregation. Um, so John got the same kind of treatment. His audience said, you're so awesome. You're so great. Are you the one? They, all of Israel had been looking for, waiting for the Messiah. All the prophets talked about the one who was coming, who would be a prophet and would do miracles, and he would be like Moses. And they had been looking for him uh, all this time. And now they see this great John the Baptist, and they go, this guy's pretty special. And so they, they ask him, are you the one? That would be a temptation, right? Are you the one? It would be, yeah, matter of fact, I am the one. <laughs> now that you bring it up, I am the one, you know. Boy, you'd re reach the pinnacle of success if you were the one, right? Uh, so I'm sure he felt that pull. But his, his answer was, you can see it uh, in verse 15, they were, they were thinking that and saying it to him. You can see all four Gospels have this, by the way. And so when you compare him, you can see he was actually asked that question uh, in Matthew and Mark, and he said, no, I am not the one. So he withstood that temptation and was very candid and, and honest. And he said, uh, in fact, not only am I not the one, the one who's coming, I know that guy. And he is so awesome and so special that I'm not even worthy to tie the, his sandals on his feet. And what he meant by that in their culture, the lowest servant in a house, in, in a nice house, uh, when you came in, a visitor came in, or the people who lived there came in, he would take your shoes off and wash your feet and put your shoes, sandals back on and, and tie them. So he was talking about the lowest servant. He said, I'm not even, compared to him, I'm not even the lowest servant. That's the difference between me and him. So he, is, he understands and he is completely humble about this whole situation. Uh, so, uh, as he's doing these baptisms, and he is trying to explain to them that someone else is coming, trying to put that flashlight on, on the one who's coming, look what happens. In, in John's, uh, excuse me, Luke's account, verse 21, he's baptizing people, and it just, he just kind of lays it out there. He doesn't explain anything. He just says, Jesus was also baptized. <laughs> Uh, and so, if you go back to Matthew's account, Matthew and Mark's account, you can see that when, John, when Luke saw him coming, or when, excuse me, John the Baptist saw him coming from a distance, 
he recognized him immediately and he said, pointed to him in John's account and said, here he comes, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so here comes Jesus, and he comes out into the river, and, and uh, John the Baptist initially says, no, no, I can't baptize you. You're not a sinner. You don't need to repent. I am in need of being baptized by you, so I can't baptize you. And in Matthew uh, 3, uh, uh, Jesus says, it is necessary. No, you need to do it. It's necessary to bring in the righteousness that God intends to bring in to the people who believe. And so there's something about it's necessary for Jesus to be baptized, which is interesting because just as John recognized, Jesus is sinless. He doesn't need a baptism of repentance, but what we're going to have here is two different important reasons why Jesus is baptized. One is as an introduction it's like, okay, this guy has lived in obscurity for 30 years. I mean, he, he grew up, poor family, on, in a little bitty village uh, with no notice at all and just lived a completely normal life. His father was a carpenter and he became a carpenter. Just a completely normal life doing labor. And I can imagine the people in the town you know, would, would see Jesus and say, yeah, that's the local carpenter guy, right? Uh, just another guy. But all of a sudden, here comes Jesus. It's God's timing, and he says, now. And so Jesus comes out at about the age 30, and this is his introduction to the public. So not only is John the Baptist going to say, this is the guy, but you're going to see uh, the visible and audible confirmation by God that Jesus is the one. Are you the one? This is the one. And God is going to confirm that. Uh, and so it's his introduction. And then secondly, what's going on here is Jesus identifying with sinners. He's saying, I came for these people. I didn't come for those guys in Jerusalem, the religious leaders at the temple. I came for these people, admitted sinners who need a Savior. And so he was coming out to them and identifying himself with them in his baptism. And so he tells John uh, it's necessary, and so John baptizes him. Um, and you see the Trinity clearer in this passage than anywhere else in the Bible. You see the Trinity clearer than any other place in the Bible. Now, the Trinity is hard to understand, but to, I, to me, this helps a lot. This scene helps a lot. Somebody said, if you try to understand the Trinity, you'll go crazy, right? And I've never heard a perfect uh, explanation of the Trinity. I, don't, I, don't, I think it's above us. It's too heavenly for us to get. Uh, and here, though, we see... The Trinity, all three persons of the Godhead at the same place at the same time. And we find out another truth about the Trinity, which is the, the three distinct persons uh, are all about, you know, how do you explain it? it? You explain it by way of function. God the Father has the plan, the will, and the decree. 
from before creation, God said, I'm going to create the world. I'm going to make these people in my image. And if they sin, or he knew they would, of course, then I will have this plan of the redemption of mankind. He had the plan, the will, and he decreed that it would happen. God the Son was that person of the Trinity, of the Godhead, who would come into the world and carry out the plan. Jesus did all the work. And then the third person is the Holy Spirit who comes to lead us and explain to us in our hearts internally who God is and what God's program is. So the Holy Spirit is that part of God that changes your heart from within and leads you in your life. And so you see it here. The Holy Spar- the Holy- Here's Jesus out in the river. The Holy Spirit descended upon him, and they saw it. It wasn't a dove. It just looked like a dove. It was kind of in that image. So, but they visibly saw the Spirit descend on him, and then they heard the voice of God speaking from heaven. And he's, he's confirming Jesus. Thou art my beloved Son, and thee I am well pleased. So everything he's doing is right and in concert with my will and my word and all the Old Testament prophecy that I had the prophets give before this. And so you have this uh, introduction, the confirmation, and the identification with the audience, uh, all in Jesus' baptism there. And you see God the Son being baptized, the Holy Spirit descending upon him, and God the Father speaking to confirm him. So all the people there uh, heard it and saw it and, and should have known it, therefore. God made it clear. All right? Then in verse 23, we, we won't spend any time on this, but you have the uh, genealogy of Jesus that Luke puts there. Uh, because, again, this is the beginning of the ministry, and he wants to make sure you realize that all the prophets, Jesus fulfilled everything they said, that he would be of the tribe of Judah and the house of David, right? And so uh, you go through the genealogy, and that's really all it's about. It goes all the way back to Adam, but you can see Abraham there, and, of course, uh, David and uh, the tribe of Judah. So, uh, the genealogy is laid out there. Jesus adheres to, to the right person according to the scriptures. And uh, then you have the second really awesome story in today's lesson, uh, which is the temptation of the Son of Man. The temptation. This, this is great. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, Return from the Jordan. So after this baptism, after his introduction, what happens? The Holy Spirit led him in the wilderness to be tested or tempted. Uh, I'm not sure what your uh, translation says. Some of them say tempted by the devil, verse 2. Some of them say tested. Guess what? In the Greek, it's the same word. They only have one word for that. It's interchangeable tested or tempted so it can mean either one depending on the contest I think in Jesus case both happened he was he was tested and passed the test of course but they were valid temptations see and you'll see why as we go through it so for 40 days he was tempted and during those days 
he didn't have anything to eat, so he fasted during, during that time. So he's hungry, right? Can you imagine not eating? for You'd be hungry. You'd feel that hunger. It would be painful. And Jesus, being completely human, felt that hunger. It was painful. He, I guarantee you he wanted something to eat. And so the first temptation is going to hit him right where he was weak, right where he would really feel it. It would be a very meaningful temptation to him. And uh, we'll see three uh, temptations. Uh, and as we go through this, you might ask the question, you might ask yourself, or you might have heard it said, uh, maybe this has gone through your mind before. Here is God in the flesh, being perfect without sin. What's going on here? I mean, there's no way he can fail this test. God can't be tempted to sin, can he? So is this real? Can he really can Jesus really be tempted? That's the question. And theologians have wrestled with that, of course. But the answer is, yes, he it was a valid temptation because being a 100% man, being a human being, he felt the hunger. You know, you see him in the Garden of Gethsemane later at the end of his ministry and what's happening. He's scared. He's fearful. He's anxious. He was so uh, fearful and anxious about the coming pain in his humanity. He didn't want the pain. He didn't want the suffering. And he, and he asked, uh, Lord, is there another way? Surely there's another way to do this without me having to go through this. And also being human, the humiliation and the rejection. Who wants that? Who likes that? Yeah, I love to be humiliated and rejected. You know, and nobody wants that. And he felt that and he understood that because he had a 100% human body that felt all these things. So the, the answer is yes, he was tempted, but in his deity, he was able, fully able to withstand the temptation, to overcome it. So yes, it was a real temptation uh, for him. And, uh, and, and they were right where he was vulnerable. You'll see all three of these were perfectly fitted, perfectly suited for Jesus and his situation and who he is, right? So Jesus is both fully human and he's able to be tempted, but he is sinless and able to overcome all temptations. It's, and, and that's proven here in, uh, in this temptation of Christ. That's really what it's about. Uh, Jesus had to be proven to be fully human, uh, and this is how God did it. He, he put him out there, and he felt the hunger, and he was tempted by it, but he's sinless. So he's got to be full, proven to be fully human, but also he's got to be proven to be sinless. Uh, Hebrews 4.15 gives you another really good reason why he was tempted. God let him out there because a, he is a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, who in every way has been tempted. I mean, he's been through everything we've been through. He lived for 30 years as just completely normal people. I'm sure he got all the, the illnesses that everybody gets, had all the kind of pain. He was probably rejected, probably had sand kicked in his face, bullied. I don't know. 
But he lived a completely normal, humble life, and he went through everything we've ever been through, and he was tempted in every way that we are tempted and felt that. And so he understands what it's like to be us, see, which is very important that he represent us, that he knows what it's all about to be like us. Uh, the three uh, temptations that Satan's going to use that are suited fit perfectly for Jesus, really uh, the categorically are like, a lot like the temptations we go through. The first one is physical, physical desires. You know, you, you have a lot of physical desires for a lot of different things. You know, when it comes to eating and drinking and, and pleasure, pursuit of pleasure, all these uh, desires of greed, ambition, uh, a whole litany for us. But Jesus here, his physical need at the time was hunger. His need was hunger. And so being feeling incredibly hungry, Satan says, you know what? You've got the power. You're hungry. Just create some bread. Just create some food. You can do it. Why go hungry? Of course, Jesus knew it was the will of God that he fast and go through this and feel the hunger. And so it would have been easy to create the bread to satiate his hunger, but instead he quotes scripture from Deuteronomy 8. That he says, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, we think life is all about eating and drinking and, and sex and all the other things that we do. But he says, you know, first and foremost, it's about knowing and obeying and being in the Word of God. That's what it's all about. Okay? That's eternal. And so then the second temptation, uh, Jesus came, as you know, to die on the cross. It, it's all about uh, the suffering and dying, the suffering servant, uh, to die for our sins, right? Uh, so that's why he came. And then afterwards, he would set up the kingdom, which still remains in the future. He's going to do that. And so that's why he came. So what's the temptation here? Take the shortcut. The shortcut. We always want a shortcut. You notice that? How can we avoid the pain and the hardship and the suffering. Show me how to get around all that. And, uh, and so he is tempted to take a shortcut, again, to not go through the Passion Week, not go through all the humiliation, not go through uh, the pain and the suffering and the rejection and the physical death on the cross. Uh, just, Satan says, we can cut right through all that. And I'll give you all the kingdoms. That's why you came to set up the kingdom. I'll give it to you. You don't have to go through all that stuff. But, of course, Jesus knew it was God's will that he go through all that in order to die on the cross to atone for our sin. If he had fallen to this temptation, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here. See? And he knew that to redeem mankind, this had to be done the hard way. First the cross, then the kingdom. And Jesus knew that. Uh, so Satan had said, just worship me, no big deal. 
And Jesus has written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The first of the Ten Commandments and the most important one. So now the third temptation is an appeal to his pride. Appeal to his pride. You're the son of God. You're the Messiah. And these dummies out there don't, don't even know who you are. Why risk rejection and, and people don't know who you are when I can take you up to the top of the temple and you can jump off the wall. It's about four or 500 feet down into the Kidron Valley and you know God's angels will come catch you. And all of Jerusalem will see this. The whole priesthood up there on the temple will see it and they'll know that you're God's son and you're the Messiah. Why risk rejection? You're the man. You're the man. Let everybody know. So he was appealing to Jesus' pride. Uh, don't take the risk of being rejected. Avoid that risk of being rejected, which, of course, would, we know would happen. Israel rejected him. So he's saying, you're the Christ, so why don't you just reveal it right now? Why go through all that stuff? See? And so he quotes scripture about the angels protecting people that believe in God. And Jesus says, uh, no, you missed out on that deal. That didn't have anything to do with us getting God to, to uh, be tested by us so that we won't have to go through what we're supposed to go through. Right? This has to do with me accomplishing the purpose that God sent me into the world to accomplish. And so he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Uh, and so categorically, you know, you've got three, three categories of these three sins that also apply to us. One is the physical desires. We, we have a whole bunch of those that we think need to be satisfied. Secondly is the shortcuts we all want to take. We all want to compromise. We're willing to do anything, cut any corner, morally, ethically, cut those corners to get what we want, what we think we need, and to avoid suffering and pain, right? And then thirdly, pride. We want to elevate ourselves. We want to promote ourselves. And we want acclamation. Uh, so that's all common. To, those three are common to all of us. And I think most temptations fall in those categories. So now you have the, the next story in chapter 4, which to me is connected to the previous stories. And even kind of connects it in verse 14 by saying, and, or and then, Jesus returned to the Galilee. And so Jesus uh, grew up in the area. Nazareth was in the area called the Galilee, which is over there to the uh, uh, west and north of the Sea of Galilee. And he, he went back home from the Jordan River in the Judean wilderness back up to the Galilee. And he was speaking in all the synagogues. So he would go, all, there's something like two or 300 little towns and villages uh, in that area. And he would go through each one. And they all had synagogues where they would meet on Saturday. And he would go in there and he would uh, read from the word and maybe do a couple of miracles or whatever. Uh, 
<laughs> and so in verse 16, he comes to Nazareth. Now, what's special about Nazareth? That he would mention that specifically by name. Well, that's his hometown. Now, Jesus has been introduced as the Son of God, the Messiah, and he's been confirmed by God. He's passed the test. He's sinless. He's perfect. So now we're thinking, well, he's got it made. We don't have to worry about this guy anymore. I know all these people are going to accept him now. He's fulfilling all these prophecies. He's teaching with authority. He's doing miracles. Surely the people in his hometown will accept him, receive him, right? Yeah, right. So at the beginning of his ministry, Luke places this story of him coming into Nazareth, and you see that Nazareth, I think in this story, well represents the nation of Israel. And particularly we know that because of what Jesus' comments are at the end of this story. Uh, and so Nazareth, the very city that you would expect to recognize him and receive him, rejects him. Let's look at the story. So he came to, verse 16, he came to Nazareth, chapter 4, verse 16, uh, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on Saturday, on the Sabbath, and it was always the custom uh, for someone, some uh, important person to stand up and read from the prophets. And so they had all these scrolls in a box, and they would pull out a scroll and give it to him and have him read it. And so Jesus was kind of like, I think they initially really welcomed him because Jesus was like the hometown boy made good, right? And he's come back home. He's out there, you know, getting famous, doing all these miracles and preaching in front of huge crowds. And here he's come back to the, to the roost. So initially he gets this great welcome and he's asked to speak. And so they hand him the Isaiah scroll. And he reads from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel, the good news, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. This was a well-known messianic prophecy about the work of, that Messiah would do when he came. Uh, they're all very familiar with it and, and who it pertains to. And so Jesus closed up the, the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the people there were upon him. He's the a celebrity. And he began to say to them, can you imagine they're all looking at him? And he says, today, right now, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they knew he meant that he had fulfilled that prophecy about the Messiah, that he was claiming to be the Messiah. Now, they had been very happy with him. Verse 32 says they had been speaking well of him. And, but then when he said that, what, what was their response? He said, they said, wait a minute. Is this not Joseph's son? He grew up here. We know this guy. We know his family. He put the cabinets in our house. He's the local carpenter guy, right? And he's standing up saying, I'm the man. I'm the one. I'm the Messiah. Come on, man. 
And so they break out and they get really angry. And Jesus' response is, he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. They know him too well. Familiarity breeds contempt. Also tells you how poor a judge we are of who's righteous and who's not, right? He had grown up there, you know, very humbly, uh, just a normal life. And so they looked at him and they didn't see perfection. They didn't see that he was sinless. Then verse 25, I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. In other words, a Gentile. And then he gives another example of Elisha. In both stories, it's the same. The prophet came to Israel, was rejected, and then he was received by a Gentile. How do you think they're going to like that in Nazareth? What he's basically saying is, you guys in Nazareth, you've blown it. You're no good. You're sinners. You, you reject God's person who he sent to save you. But the Gentiles will receive me. <laughs> so this is an outrageous insult. They had less faith and obedience than despicable Gentiles. And so in a rage, they jump up and they grab him and they take him out to throw him off the cliff. Now, you've got to be pretty mad at somebody to throw him off a cliff. But that's how mad they were at him. And it's a picture of the rejection by Israel of Jesus. That's what this story's all about, okay? So let me uh, just conclude uh, and, and say, you know, what's this all about? What are all these stories about, really? Uh, to me, uh, I was, if I could think of one word, it would be purpose. Purpose. You know, John the Baptist says, I can't baptize you. Uh, you know, the devil says, just cut these corners. You don't need to do all that suffering, have all that pain. And the people of Nazareth also want to muzzle him. But what's his purpose in all these things? It's, these stories are all about Jesus' purpose. Why did God take on the flesh and come into the world? What was the purpose of it? Why did John the Baptist live in the wilderness and preach repentance? What was the purpose of it? Well, Jesus' purpose statement is, I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. He came to do that very thing that, he was tempted not to do. He came to suffer. He came to die on the cross because his purpose was to atone for our sin, to be a sacrifice for us, right? So he came with that purpose to provide that atonement. He came to die on the cross so there could be no shortcuts. There could be no compromise because there's no glory 
without first that dose of suffering. First the cross, then the kingdom. And Jesus knew that. And that was his purpose. And everything that he did uh, and all of his answers to all the questions. And let me ask you a question that, that pertains to this. I like this one. Can you have the honeymoon before the wedding? <laughs> That's what the Satan was trying to get him to do. I tell you what, why don't you have the honeymoon before the wedding? Is that a good idea? Jesus says, no. You can't have the honeymoon before the wedding. I've got to die on the cross and then set up the kingdom. And that's what we, of course, look forward to. That's what we praise God about. Thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus. Thank you that he was sinless and he was the perfect uh, man. He had to be 100% man to die for our sins. And he had to be sinless to make it effective. Thank you for sending Jesus, the only one that could accomplish that. Let me close in prayer. Lord, we praise you and thank you for blessing us in every way. Thank you for sending your son and that he accomplished the purpose that you sent him for. And in his name we pray, amen.